Welcome or welcome back to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Jade, and thank you so much for joining me today. This week, we are going to be talking about Sante and Kenny Kimes, the mother and son duo who were involved in a string of crimes from scams, stealing, forgery, and eventually murder all over the country until they were actually finally captured. So without further ado, let's get started. Sante Kimes was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma on July 24th, 1934. She was born Sandra Singers and was one of four children born to her mother, Mary Van Horn, a Dutch migrant, and her father, Prama Singers, an East Indian who immigrated to the United States. This period is or was known as the Great Depression, and it was one of the most severe economic downturns in U.S. history. Many people, including Sante and her family, were struggling at the time. They lived off the land and struggled to find food. Many people that were in the farming industry were struggling to start their farming business or struggle to keep it because there was a severe drought in the area. Sante grew up feeling embarrassed about her background. She didn't have money, she didn't come from money, and she was always suffering. She also claimed to have faced racism, but we don't know that that's true. We don't know what's true and what's not true because Sante enjoys making up stories. She loves changing the narratives and she loves lying. It's it's her personality trait. The family ended up in Los Angeles, where Sante's father abandoned his wife on the side of the road in a completely new state. And Sante said that her mother was a prostitute in LA. Sante claimed that stealing groceries from the grocery store was her only means of survival. As Sante was growing up, she learned about people like her, people who were poor and had nothing. And then she learned about people that were filthy rich and had everything and more. Sante was then adopted by an LA theater owner when she was 13 years old, and her mother was absolutely welcome to this idea. She was absolutely happy because her daughter was hard to deal with and she could not put up with her anymore. Sante's adopted family lived in Nevada. Her adopted father was in the army, and she was, you know, gradually working her way up the social ladder. Sante was described as forceful and domineering, and she only had one friend named Ruth. Sante and Ruth moved to Santa Barbara, California, after graduating high school in 1952 to attend college and major in journalism. This is where 
her criminal activities begin. We start with forging. She used Bruce, the name of her friend Ruth, her future father-in-law, his name. Sorry if that was a little confusing. Bruce began receiving odd bills one day and Sante would, you know, go to local stores and charge thousands of dollars to his name for whatever she desired, such as makeup, clothes, jewelry, and perfume. On May 9th, 1956, at the age of 21, Sante married her boyfriend, Lee. When he became a teacher, and as all we, as we all know, teachers do not make a lot of money, Sante filed for the divorce three months later since he could not take her where she wanted to go, and where she wanted to go was at the top of the money world. That's what she desired. Sante was characterized as a gorgeous woman, but she was also a parasite. She knew the kind of men she wanted, and when she found them, she would latch onto them, use them, and then abandon them. A few months later, she reconciled with her second high school boyfriend, Edward Kent, and they got married on November 9th, 1957. In the marriage, Sante would spend $13,000 one Christmas, which Ed could not afford. They were on different financial wavelengths. This is the time where Sante changed her name from Sandra to Sandy, then to Santee, and finally to Sante to sound more French and exotic and to be someone that she was not. Kent Walker, her first son, was born in 1962. Sante would have affairs after Kent was born because she still desired this extravagant lifestyle and she needed to find a method to fund it, so she began insurance fraud. Kent, her son, recalled that one of his first recollections was arriving home and seeing firefighters at his house since the house had literally burned to the ground. And this wasn't the first time. This was the third or fourth time that this happened. Sante would set fire to the house in order to collect insurance money, and it eventually drove Ed Walker insane because here was this man who worked hard for everything that he had, and here was Sante, ruining everything that he worked for just so that she could get more money. Sante was dubbed the Dragon Lady by the police because of the multiple fires that she set. The family relocated to Sacramento to escape the suspicions of the fires. Sante would then begin stealing after committing insurance fraud. Kent, her son, stated that his mother was always stealing from stores. In 1966, she was arrested three times in five days. When police arrived at her home, they discovered various credit cards under various false aliases. She was charged with 17 counts of grand theft, but all she had to do was pay a fine since some man in her life had arranged, you know, a great lawyer for her, and she got away with it. 
Sante was still having affairs with different men, and Ken stated that one day his parents were arguing, and Sante threw a knife at Ed, which got caught in his arm. Sante was making it known that she was seeing different men in her marriage. She wasn't even hiding it at this point. Ed would walk into his own house that he took his hard-working money to buy and see Sante with another man. The divorce was finalized in 1969, and the divorce and the marriage actually destroyed Ed because it's not every day that you marry someone who burns down houses to collect insurance fraud, and once again, she was just a pain to deal with. Sante was with her son Kent one day, and he was waiting on the hood of the car while she walked into the dress shop. Suddenly, she runs out of the store, claiming that a lady was after her and telling her son to get in the car. The lady grabbed Sante's arm and accused her of shoplifting, and Sante once again began to carry out her plan, clenching her fists and punching her son, busting his lip. And then she yelled at the police that this woman assaulted her son. They obviously did not believe her and arrested her for assaulting her son. Now that Sante was divorced and broke, she was still determined to climb the social ladder. Therefore, she was on a mission to marry a wealthy man. Kent added that his mother constantly told him to marry for money because, you know, you don't want to be broke. That was her life motto. Sante knew that her beauty would bring her what she wanted and who she desired. Sante resembled Elizabeth Taylor. I did not come up with this, the internet did. Elizabeth Taylor is a well-known actress, and my mom has several of her perfumes that smell amazing. And, you know, I think when you look at Elizabeth Taylor, it's, it's an offense to Elizabeth Taylor. But that's just who she resembles, so you have an idea. Ken Kimes was worth $22 million at the time, and in 2023, he would have been worth $668 million dollars. Sante knew what she was doing to get a man worth that much money. Before executing her plan, she learned a few things about Ken. For example, she discovered that Ken's favorite color is white, so she would always wear white around him. His favorite flowers was gardenias, so she would wear a perfume that smelled exactly like gardenias. Ken was absolutely starstruck by her, and even his friend warned him about Sante. He was like, you know, this is someone you should probably avoid for, for your own good. But he didn't mind the warning. It was like, okay. Sante assigned Ken a random role as an ambassador, granting them entry to a White House reception, where they were photographed with then-President Gerald Ford. They would also attend three additional embassy receptions. So they were just, I don't know how she did it, but she was just everywhere. She was everywhere with everyone up in the social ladder world. When Ken 
did not want to get married, Sante ran into difficulty because that was the only way that she was going to get his money. Ken had children from a previous relationship who she referred to as the creeps. And she figured that if he's not going to marry me and I can't have his money, oh, I know just what to do. Let's create a child. Kenneth Karam Kimes was born on March 24th, 1975. Sante raised Kenneth to be very isolated. She would have teachers come to the house to keep him from leaving the house and, you know, socializing with people his age. She did not want Kenneth anywhere outside. She wanted him all to herself. Kenneth had no friends since he was constantly surrounded by his mother and all that he knew was his mother and obviously they're going to be attached at the hip in a very short time he was described as the golden child according to kent his older brother ken and sante married in clark county nevada on april 5th 1981 on July 12, 1985, Kenneth was 10 years old when the FBI raided the couple's house in Las Vegas because Sante had been trafficking Mexican girls across the border and treating them as slaves. If they didn't follow Sante's orders, she would tell authorities that they were undocumented immigrants. Sante the woman claimed would physically beat them and once attacked them with an iron. Ken Kimes was arrested and charged with 15 counts of slavery. He accepted a plea deal for a three-year prison suspension in exchange for agreeing to attend AA meetings because apparently he was an alcoholic. Sante received a five-year prison sentence. There is an article titled quote, my mother taught me to kill, end quote, which is a story told by Kenny Kimes about his childhood and so on. He claimed that when his mother was sentenced to prison, he went into a state of rest and that his mother was a peace advocate deprivation, meaning that when she was around, there was no such thing as peace. He also claims that while Sante was in prison, his father was constantly talking about how he was going to leave her. But once she was released, it's like all that talk went out of the window. Kenneth was starting school for the first time when Sante was sent to prison, and this was his first time experiencing life as a child. Once Sante was released from prison in December 1989 after serving three years, Things return to normal. Sante's normal, I should say. Sante began controlling Kenny in a far worse way. She would always tell him to do whatever it is. Kenny, drink water. Kenny, brush your teeth. Kenny, make the bed. Kenny, do this. Kenny, do that. Obviously, it's going to drive someone insane. Sante withdrew him from school once again. And... Kenny ran away from home when he was 16 years old, and Kent was sent to find him. Kenny was filled with rage and anger at this point in his life, and Kent added that 
When Kenny returned home, he stayed this time, and he still wonders how things might have turned out differently if he had let his brother Kenny go. The Kimes owned a house in Nassau, Bahamas, and while it appeared that they had everything from the outside, Ken Kimes was now 77 years old and somewhat stressed out by Sante. Ken Kimes died of an aneurysm on March 28, 1994. Sante now has a new problem. She doesn't want his children from his previous marriage to learn that he's dead, since they would get all his money, and not Sante. Kenny was 19 years old and a college student in 1994, and lately he had been working on his maturity, and he decided to wow his father by wearing a suit. His mother is the one that greets him when he steps off the plane, and she tells him that his father died two months ago. She kept his death a secret. She did not allow for a full autopsy to be completed, and he was cremated the next day. Sante pretended Ken was still alive by using credit cards and attempting to access his accounts. Nevertheless, questions, of course, began to develop when 55-year-old Saeed Bilal Ahmed, a bank executive at Ken's offshore account, became concerned when Ken's bank account began to request a large number of money transfers. Said travels to the Bahamas to investigate all of this, and Sante sees him as a problem that she has to fix. On September 4th, 1996, Kenny and Sante go out to dinner with bank investor Said. Following dinner, they bring him back to the house for coffee, and they put a date rate drug in the coffee. They drugged him and drowned him in the bathtub. Kenny dumped the body in the ocean, and Said has never been found. They left the Bahamas and moved into a mobile home in Florida before embarking on a cross-country shoplifting spree. Sante was arrested on May 19, 1997, and Kenny punched the police officer for whatever reason, like shoplifting is not a crime, and that it's wrong. Kenny was now 22 years old and being arrested for the first time, and the first thing he did was call his brother. Kent stated that he was relieved when he received a call from his brother that he was in jail, and he hoped that it helped Kenny realize that if he continued down this path, he would end up in prison. The courts viewed Kenny as a first-time offender, which meant that Oh, it's least likely to happen again. Everyone makes mistakes, so they let him free. And this proved to Kenny that he could do whatever he wanted, and he would always get away with it. Sante had no money, and Ken's money was not going to her. So she had to look elsewhere, and she and Kenny moved in with her oldest son, Kent. Kent mentioned that when they stayed with him, Kenny and Sante were on a team, and it was like they were against Kent, they were against everyone, basically.
They quickly left and moved on to their next scheme, which included fraud and murder. Again. Sante and Ken gave the deed to their Las Vegas home to a friend named David Kasdan in 1992 because they could not afford it any longer. David Kasdan was a 63-year-old man from New York with the house he signed as collateral. David discovered the forgery after receiving a letter from his bank saying that he had a new mortgage. And then the house burned down, and the insurance company, of course, refused to pay for it because they knew that someone purposely set the fire. So, David then threatened to expose Ken. And now, all these years later, it came back to Sante, and Sante was like, mmm, revenge. On March 13, 1998, Kenny and a friend traveled to Los Angeles, where David lived in Granada Hills. Kenny knocked on the door, and when David answered, he welcomed, him, he welcomed him in and offered him coffee. When David turns around to go and make the coffee, Kenny pulls out his gun and shoots him in the back of the neck, killing him instantly. Kenny and his friend loaded David's body into the back of David's own vehicle and drove it to an alley dumpster. Kenny then sends Sante flowers as though there is something to celebrate. Sante decided to buy a car, using a forged check two weeks after David's murder. When the dealership discovered the forgery, they reported it to police, and warrants were quickly obtained for Sante and Kenny. After two murders and numerous frauds and scams and stealing, they decided to go to New York City. They were then plotting their next scam. Sante was looking for a place to live when she came across 82-year-old socialite Irene Silverman. Irene was the owner of a $7.7 million Manhattan mansion that she converted into apartments for rent. Sante obviously desired what Irene possessed, and she makes up an alias, Manny Gurin. Kenny takes control of this situation. He tells Irene that he would pay her the $6,000 for the apartment right away, and all she had to do was not ask questions. He then installs a bug into her apartment, allowing him and Sante to listen in on their conversation. Now, Irene wasn't stupid. Irene had this strange feeling about Kenny, since, you know, she could always see the shadow of his feet under the door and knew that he was always watching her through the peephole. To finalize the deed transfer, Sante obtains a copy of the deed and forges Irene's signature on it. Now you're probably wondering how Sante got a copy of the deed. Well, she dressed up as Irene and convinced the clerk that she needed a copy of the deed. Absolutely insane, I tell you. They determined that forging Irene's signature was not enough. Sante and Kenny moved into the apartment in June 1998, and Irene was reported missing on July 5th, 1998. On July 5th, 1998, Kenny tells Irene to come over, when Sante then tased Irene in the back, causing her to fall to the ground. Kenny gets on top of her and strangles her with his bare hands. 
Kenny then placed Irene's body in a duffel bag, drove about 20 minutes to Hoboken, New Jersey, and dumped her body in a trash bin. Kenny reported that when he returned, he discovered Sante cleaning the crime scene with rubbing alcohol, and they decided that now that Irene was out of the way, it was time to celebrate, I guess. So they get in their car and drive to Trump Tower in Midtown to eat at the Trump Cafe, where they would sip on their coffees and eat pastries as if it was a normal hot sunny summer day in the Big Apple. Kenny would go on to say that his mother was extremely proud of him for killing Irene, stating, quote, You did good, Kenny, end quote. And he also stated that it was weird and strange because these were the hands that had just been around Irene's neck and now they're around a cup of coffee. It took just a few hours for people to notice that Irene was missing. A former NYPD officer received a call indicating that Irene was missing and that the staff knew 100% that she wouldn't just leave like that because she had difficulty walking and she wouldn't leave by herself. Stanley agreed to assist authorities in apprehending Sante and Kenny in order to avoid arrest. So one day they call Stanley and they're like, hey Stan, we want you to come to New York because we have this beautiful, beautiful $7.7 million townhouse and you're going to love it just as much as we love it. We want you to come over here and be the caretaker of it. We also need you to change the locks and evict every single person out of this townhouse. And Stanley's like, hell yeah. Sure, I can meet you in New York City on July 5th, if that's alright with you. Stanley informed the FBI of his plans to visit New York on July 5th. They then passed that information on to detectives in New York. They then formed a task force to apprehend Sante and Kenny. Stanley and the Kimes met in the New York Hilton Hotel on 6th Avenue. Stanley had to tip his hat to let the police know that it was time to arrest Sante and Kenny. After dumping Irene's body and drinking tea and crumpets at the Trump Tower, Sante and Kenny arrived six hours later. When they were arrested, Sante throws her bag down and claims that it's not hers. And Kenny pees his pants. That's not being funny, he actually peed his pants. Yeah. Sante's bag contained seven passports, five bank books, and checks belonging to Irene. They discovered a forged social security card in Irene's name on Kenny. Kenny was identified in a photo lineup by the employees, and a search warrant was obtained for his apartment. When they look around, they realize that the shower curtain is missing. They also find multiple wigs, date rape drugs, and papers filled with Irene's signature, as if they were practicing her signature. They discovered a to-do list, and on it wrote duct tape and garbage bags. They also discovered another bag with the forged deed to the townhouse. In December 1993, Kenny and Sante were facing 84 charges, including Irene's murder, even though her body has never been found. 
Sante believed that this was her last chance to shine in court. And she went on and on and on about blaming the authorities and claiming that her own lawyers had framed her. She then compared their trial to the Salem witch trials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. And said that the prosecutors were, quote, guilty of murdering the Constitution, end quote. Whatever that means. And the judge told her to stop talking. She just kept, again, going on and on and on in interviews. There's a 60-minute interview claiming her innocence and crying. Sante was found guilty and sentenced to 120 years in prison, while Kenny received a 125-year sentence. They discovered evidence linking them to David Kasdan's murder, and they were to be extradited to California, where they may face the death penalty if convicted. Kenny was extradited to Los Angeles in March 2001 to stand trial for David's murder. Kenny is offered a plea bargain. In order to avoid the death penalty, he would confess to the killings of Saeed Bilal Ahmed and David Kasdan and testified against his mother, ensuring that none of them would face the death penalty. Both were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, and the judge described Sante as, quote, one of the most evil individuals she had ever encountered in her years on the bench, unquote. Sante died on May 19, 2014, at the age of 79, while serving her sentence at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. Kenny Kimes is now 48 years old and currently incarcerated at California's Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. Kenny was in contact with Tracy Faust, a writer, while in prison. They exchanged letters about his story, and eventually they spent two years communicating the most intimate aspects of their lives through letters, phone calls, and visits. Kenny also admitted to falling in love with Tracy. Tracy died on January 13, 2018, as a result of complications from the flu and pneumonia. He states in the article, quote, I now know what real love feels like and understand what I took from the families and friends of Irene, David, and Said. I took from them the most precious gift. I stole the one thing we can never return, end quote. He also states that, quote, prison has not reformed me. The system did not help me seek out absolution. Love did. I say this to anyone in a painful situation that seems impossible to get out of. You don't have to be broken by your suffering. The big difference between us isn't that you're free and I'm not. I know I created my loneliness. I have no one to blame but myself because I took innocent lives. Everything is a choice, and my choice was to willfully throw it all away. Don't let it be yours. End quote. I can get behind... Kenny on that quote that he obviously you know every we all have a choice in life and do not let your life be the one where behind bars for the rest of your life end of episode thoughts I can get behind what Kenny said that he obviously took the one thing that you can never get back 
and that is people, and that all of us have a choice in life. Do not mess it up by committing crimes and spending the rest of your life in prison. Do not create that life for yourself. Sante still, I mean, not still to this day because she's dead, but Sante believed that she was innocent till the day she died. She believed that she was innocent, and even in hell, she most likely believes that she is innocent. Kenny is remorseful, and he understands the pain that he caused the victim's families and friends, but it's too late for that. You know, remorse doesn't get you out of prison. I don't know why any mother who chooses to recruit what am I trying to say? Who chooses to commit crimes would recruit her son. She was definitely a manipulative woman for sure. And Kenny is just as evil as his mother because he was willing to kill. He could have easily said no from the very beginning and yet he chose to be by her side and commit these murders. I feel for Kent because he experienced Sante's manipulation and her schemes before anyone else did. And when Kenny came along, she did the same thing to him. Only thing is that Kenny was really, really, really wrapped up in it. When Kent Walker said that it's the what if that he still questions to this day, what if he never went to get Kenny? Maybe none of this would have happened, but no one could have known that would happen. Greed is very, a very powerful thing. It is, and it makes you do ridiculous things, even commit murder. But I hope that Kent is able to forgive himself. I feel bad for Kent, and at the same time, I'm glad that he's a way better person than his mother and brother could have ever been. And with that, today's story comes to an end. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, every episode, every episode, really? Remember, every Thursday, there is a new episode that comes out at 7 a.m. in the morning. You can keep up with me and the podcast at Instagram at Criminal Curiosity Pod. Twitter is Crim Curiosity, and TikTok is Criminal Curiosity Pod. That is all that I have for you today. Don't be greedy. Please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time. Bye, everyone.